You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. So this morning, our reading is Acts 7, 38 through 51. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. <clears throat> did, you bring me, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until, <clears throat> so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, on this weekend of Thanksgiving, I pray that we remember the gifts that you've given us and the things that you've done for us. And although we all have had tragedies and sorrows, we have so much to be thankful for in you, Lord. And I pray that we all search our hearts and our minds and give thanks to you for everything, even the small and seemingly insignificant you put in our life for a reason. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for you, Lord. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see all of you guys. Um, so most of you guys know that I have been uh, recovering from illness, and that took a little longer than I thought. I still have a little bit of tightness in my chest today, but uh, I have been recovering. Uh, but during that time of illness, um, I had the chance to uh, read a book that I was prompted to read called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Has anybody ever uh, read that book before? Okay, so those of you who are in book club, you know that Tim Keller references that book. And I thought, oh, okay, so let me, let me just go ahead and read that book. And probably uh, most of you are uh, familiar, at least with the premise uh, of that book. 
and so in this book, Dr. Jekyll, uh, he realizes that there are sort of like these two um, competing sides to him, right? Uh, one of them is sort of morally restrained, right? And, and the desire of that side of him is that he would be seen by society as a respectable, honorable member of society. So that Dr. Jekyll has that side to him. And then on the other side is this darker side um, that would want to be, let's say, unfettered, unrestrained in his pursuit of his evil desires. So he's got these uh, members at war within him. Sort of reminds you of Romans chapter 7 in some ways. But he doesn't take the path of Romans 8 to resolve it, okay? What, what he does, Dr. Jekyll decides to, to make a potion that will separate those two sides so that his darker side can pursue evil desires unfettered by guilt and shame and everything else. So when, when Dr. Jekyll takes the potion, right, even his physical appearance changes and he becomes Mr. Hyde, okay? Now, in the book, nobody knows that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are two sides of the same person until at the very end of the book, and all is revealed. So spoiler alert, I guess. I mean, how old is this book? It's 100 years old. You should have read it by now. But, um, but you know, that's revealed at the, at the very end. Okay, so I, I bring this up because if you look at the history of Israel, there's sort of like two versions of Israel that you will find. There's a more uh, morally restrained respectable version of Israel, uh, probably the Sanhedrin who are being addressed in our passage belong to that uh, category, a respectable version of Israel. But then there is a darker version, right? Uh, one that is unrestrained in its uh, pursuit of, of evil. So you've got these two sides. And what Stephen does, I'm going to argue, in this passage is he's going to take those two sides of Israel's history and he's going to set them side by side in order to make a point. Now, we have been looking at this um, speech that Stephen gives before the Sanhedrin and, and I almost want to apologize for how long it's taking to get through this. How many speeches does it take to get through one speech, right? Like... Um, but I, I don't know what to do. I'm doing my very, very best. It's very long. It's a long chapter, okay, guys? Um, and and we're, we're getting close to the finish line. We have this sermon, Lord willing, uh, next week we will sort of wrap up what, what Stephen uh, says. But he's been addressing uh, the Sanhedrin um, in response to these charges that his message, the gospel message about Jesus, is threatening some cherished institutions that they have. Namely, uh, the temple, right, the, the holy place, and also the customs of Moses. These national identity markers that set Israel apart from the other nations. Now, what we have seen as we have gone along is that Stephen's defense is to make this long speech where he puts 
all of this situation, including the charges, within the framework of God's history of redemption, God's saving acts during Israel's history. So he'll start at the very beginning of his speech with the call of Abraham out of where? Out of Babylon, where his uh, ancestors worshipped idols. So he, he, the call of Abraham, then he moves into the story of Joseph. That explains how Israel gets into Egypt. Then he moves to the story of Moses. And then we have the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. So we're right at the very uh, sort of edge. The, the, the end part of the story of Moses is kind of where we are right now. And then he'll, he'll move into the history of the temple. And then it all culminates in the cross of Jesus Christ. But in, in the portion that we're looking at this morning, what Stephen is going to do is he's going to set these two uh, parts of Israel's history. And they're not, it's almost, you can't talk about them as parts because it's, it's almost like Israel's history from two vantage points, right? From, from the vantage point of their idolatry, that's one side, that's one vantage point. But then through the vantage point of the history of the building where this trial is taking place, uh, um, the, the temple. So what he does is he, he sets these side by side and, and when you... When you look at Israel's history, right, what emerges is there's these two sort of versions of, of Israel. And, and that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at Israel as Mr. Hyde, right, unrestrained um, evil. And then I want to look at Israel as Dr. Jekyll, which is uh, more respectable, more morally restrained. And at the end, uh, we'll sort of tie it all together and talk about how those two different sides of, of Israel, how they relate to the message that Stephen has been proclaiming. The whole reason why he's been brought in in the first place is that he's been proclaiming the gospel. So how does the gospel relate to these two sides of Israel's history? So let's start with talking about Israel as Mr. Hyde. So as I said, Stephen is coming sort of to the end of the Mo Moses story of his speech. And in this portion, he's reminding the Sanhedrin how Israel's response to God's deliverance through Moses began with idolatry and then it continued in idolatry. So it began with idolatry and in this portion where he talks about that, he makes reference to the golden calf incident from Exodus chapter 32. So if you look back with me in verse 38 of Acts chapter 7, there speaking about Moses, Stephen says this. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers... He received living oracles, or you could say living words, to give to us. In verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. They thrust Moses aside, God's representative. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And then skipping down to verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing. And I catch this phrase and keep it in mind, the works of their hands. So Israel, instead of receiving 
God's representative who is bringing God's living words to them from the mountain, instead of doing that, their hearts turned to what was familiar to them. We've talked about this before. Their hearts turned to what was familiar, which included the idolatry of Egypt. Now, I I didn't realize this before, but if, if you look in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 8, there's a recounting of Israel's history is recounted in several places within the Bible, right? And in that recounting of it, it says that they never left the idolatry of Egypt. They, just like, remember when God called Abraham out of Babylon, he worshiped and his ancestors worshiped idols there. And God called them out of there, brought them into the promised land. They go into Egypt, they're there for 400 years, and they start worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. And Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 8 says that they never left that, those idols behind. Now, if you remember, and sometimes the Egyptians were even mocked for this, their gods had qualities like that of animals. You probably are picturing some of the hieroglyphics that maybe you've seen uh, sometimes. There's, they, so they're kind of sometimes look humanoid, but have like animal features. And some of them were bovine. They looked like cows. Right? And so they're, they're returning, their hearts are returning back to Egypt, what's familiar, right? And they create this golden calf. Now, uh, what Stephen is just getting at, he's saying, look, and this is how Israel responded to God's deliverance through his representative, Moses, who was bringing them living words. What they, were, what they did in response to that was make idols with human hands, now, that, that phrase, the works of their hands, is used throughout the Old Testament, like in Psalm 115.4, Isaiah 2.8, Jeremiah 1.16, many, many passages, actually. It's a reference to idols. So keep that phrase in mind. The works of their hands is a reference to idols. So their initial response to Yahweh's deliverance through God's representative was idolatry. But then it continues in idolatry. So if you look down in verse 42, there we read again, God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. This is a reference to the 12, the minor prophets, which includes Amos, which he now quotes. This is a quote from Amos 5, He says, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Now, what's interesting is that this is written in such a way so as the reader knows that the answer is no. What's interesting about that? Well, if you look in Exodus chapter 24, Numbers chapter 7, They did make sacrifices in the wilderness. So we'll set that aside for a moment. We'll we'll get get back to that. Going back to verse 43. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan. Now catch this phrase. The images that you made to worship And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 
So Israel's response, right, to God's deliverance through his representative, Moses, and the giving of living words coming down from the mountain, all the way from the time of the exodus into the wilderness wanderings, all the way until they were exiled to Babylon. How long is that? That's like almost a thousand years. So the history of their response to God's deliverance for almost a thousand years was marked by idolatry, right? They took up the tent of Moloch and the star of Raphon. Now, the, the name Moloch may not be familiar to you, but it sounds like another name. What name does it sound like? Molech, right? <laughs> Which is, this is probably just a variation of that name. Molech was a Canaanite god often associated with and sometimes even identified with Baal. We're familiar with that name. If, you're, if you read the Old Testament, that name comes up a lot, right? And Baal comes in these different forms in these different localities, right? But basically, it's the major god, the sun god, the storm god. But Molech was the god of, he's associated with Baal, sometimes identified with Baal. It gets kind of confusing, <clears throat> but he is the god of the underworld who received child sacrifice through fire. You, you guys know about Molech? Where these sacrifices were conducted when they were participated in by Israel was in a valley just south of Jerusalem called the Valley of Ben-Hanom, which was also known as Gehenna, which in the first century, some people believe, became this heap of trash on fire, right? And then who uses it to refer to hell? Jesus, repeatedly, he refers to Gehenna, this burning trash heap where they used to sacrifice their own children, right? So they, in response to God's deliverance through God's representative bringing his living words, they worshiped at the tent of hell and they worshiped the star of Raphan, which is probably a reference to the Egyptian god of Saturn. But the point is this. Stephen is reminding the Sanhedrin throughout the entire history of Israel, your response, the response of the children of Israel to God's deliverance through his representatives was to make idols with your hands and to worship at the tent of hell as you offered your own children into the metal image, sizzling image as the drums were beating so loud to drown out the cries of the infants as the infants were being sizzled by this image that, were, that was made burning hot. Right? It's, a, it's, it's a, God says it was detestable to him. And it is, it's a disgusting, vile sort of image that he is uh, bringing up to them at, at this moment. And what was God's response? turn away and to give them over to their idolatry, right? And to eventually 
exile them to Babylon. Because that kind of worship is more appropriate over there. Right? So what God is saying is like, I'm going to let you do that. You ever heard parents say something like this? I'm going to let you do that, but you're not going to do it here. You're going to do it out there. Right? Because <clears throat> that's, that's how people worship over there. You, you could do it over there. Right? And what you find in the Bible is that this is the manifestation of God's holy wrath. God's holy wrath is to give your flesh what it wants. If you, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, the wrath of God is made manifest in this, that he would give you over to what you want. Um, it reminds me of this ad campaign. Uh, Bruce would bring this up to me sometimes, Yvonne. This ad campaign by uh, Burger King. I think it might still be going on, but I, I don't look at TV, so I don't know. You guys tell me if this is still going on. But there's like a ball of flame. It's very interesting. I mean, there's a ball of flame, and in the ball of flame it says, you rule. Right? And then there's another image that comes up, and it's a, I think it's a Whopper. It's a, it's a hamburger from Burger King anyway. It's a, and it's got these intense flames behind it, right? Flame broiled, right? And the tagline is, have it your way. Right? And I'm like, <laughs> do the... Do the, I doubt that the advertisers, you know, the representatives of Burger King are really, you know, are, are they trying to have the same image and tagline as Gehenna? I, I just, it seems odd to me. And I, I love Whoppers. Why do they do that, you know? Um, but anyway, but that, it's, it's that, that's, that's the conception of, of, of hell, right? And it also reminds me of the strange case of Dr. Heckle and Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? Because when he takes the potion, Right? He is given over, he, he gives himself over to unrestrained evil. Like he says, I'm going to have it my way. He takes the potion. Right? And it becomes very vile. Right? He, trample, he gleefully tramples over a child, Mr. Hyde does. He murders somebody without any remorse, without any shame. That's part of the point of the... Of the, of the potion. And part of Israel's history is like that. It's like Mr. Hyde. And maybe that's part of some of our history is like that of, of Mr. Hyde. And I think if we're honest, we would have to say that there, there is a part of us that is, it's vile. It is, it's so ugly that we wouldn't want anybody to even know about it, right? There's a reason why his name is Mr. Hyde. There's a couple of reasons. It's Mr. Hyde, right? And, and, and one of the things that I'm, I've been praying about this morning quite a bit and that God would bring up in your mind, what is it, that thing, that you keep hidden because it's so ugly. Um, 
maybe some of you are saying like, well, actually, no, that's, that's in my past. I, I do have a very ugly past, but I have put certain strictures in place to morally restrain that side of me, right? And so that is no longer a problem for me. Well, if, that, if that's you, then you have a lot in common with Israel because we, we've talked about um, Israel as Mr. Hyde, but now let's talk about Israel as Dr. Jekyll. Now, in this section of his speech, Stephen is going to bring up a more respectable, more morally restrained side of Israel's history, namely the history of the tabernacle that became um, the temple. And he wants to say a couple of things about the temple, um, things that we have kind of brought up before. One of the things he wants to say about the temple was that the temple was good. Like the overall picture of the temple in the Old Testament, it's qualified, but the overall like sentiment regarding the temple in the Old Testament is that it's good. It's a positive uh, picture. In verse 44 of our passage, it says this, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed of the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. Then skipping down to verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. That's talking about the temple. So whose idea was the tabernacle? It's, it's God's idea. Like, so God told Moses to make it. Moses made it according to the pattern that he was given. So that's good. They had the, the tabernacle with them until Solomon built the temple. Right? And, and uh, that's, that's a little interesting because I, I don't know that God actually commanded that the temple be made, but he... He allowed it to be made, and uh, it seems like he's supportive of it. So, I mean, on the whole, right, the temple is good, right? But, and we've said this before, the temple is not ultimate. And, and there's a couple of reasons to say that. Right? Remember what uh, Stephen, when he cites Amos chapter 5, right, beginning in verse 42, what does he say? Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And we said that the expected answer was what? No. No. It's like, well, but they did, though. Like, well, then he goes on to say how they went into idolatry. They took up the tent of Molech and the star of, of Raphon. Now, to understand why the expected answer might be no, we need to know a little bit about Amos. All right, so Amos, 8th century B.C. prophet, tries to warn Israel, hey, though you are making sacrifices, your hearts are far from me. As is evidenced by your misuse of power and your mistreatment of the marginalized, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow. This is, a, this is a favorite passage of Martin Luther King Jr., by the way. 
And then by the time you get to Amos chapter 5, basically what he's saying, look, you're like your fathers in the wilderness who weren't really making sacrifices to Yahweh because their hearts were really worshiping at the tent of Molech, the tent of, the tent of hell. So just because you have a building designated to worship doesn't mean that true worship is happening. Right, so the temple is good, but the temple is not ultimate. And if you believe that the temple is ultimate, then the temple has become an idol for you. And then Stephen's speech takes a dramatic turn. <laughs> After he talks about the history of Israel from the vantage point of their idolatry, and after he talks about the history of Israel from the vantage point of the more respectable temple, he says this in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. So Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, don't you guys get it? The golden calf in verse 41 and the temple in verse 48 are made with human hands. And Molech had a tent too. Don't you think that we need something greater than something that we make with our hands? The temple by itself isn't special or holy. It's God's holy presence that makes it holy. And when you fail to recognize that God transcends the temple, he is not confined by the temple, then you have turned the tabernacle of Yahweh into the tent of Molech. Because he's not confined in that type of way. What does verse 48 say? Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now, one of the interesting things about Dr. Jekyll is that after he does these horrible things as Mr. Hyde, he then tries, as Dr. Jekyll, to atone for the sins of Mr. Hyde by becoming a respectable person in society. And then there is this scene in the book. As he is congratulating himself about being better than other people, he looks down and he has transformed into Mr. Hyde without even knowing it. Like, normally, he has to drink the potion to become Mr. Hyde, right? But as he's congratulating himself as the respectable Dr. Jekyll, he looks down and he sees that he's Mr. Hyde without even knowing it. 
And in the same way, Stephen is telling the Sanhedrin, they have tried to distance themselves from their idolatrous ancestors. And Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, look down. Look down. You have been transformed into your idolatrous ancestors. And you work at the temple, but you really worship at the tent of hell. Have you, I mean, have you ever looked down and in a moment of honesty, you say, I'm Mr. Hyde. And I try to mask it with religion. That's what Dr. Jekyll was doing. Now that brings me to a final question that, I, that I, I'm going to attempt to answer. So how do these two versions of Israel, these two versions of us, how does that relate to Stephen's message of the gospel? Well, there's good news and bad news, right? The bad news is that no amount of effort that you do with your human hands can change a single thing about you. You, you, you may be able to make yourself look good, put, put on a face on the outside, but on the inside, we're all Mr. Hyde. But the good news of the gospel, and this is so, oh, it's so powerful. The gospel that, that, that this is what Stephen is being brought in for, right? This is the real solution. You know, in the first century, there were these texts about a stone, an unhewn stone that was then associated with the Messiah and his coming kingdom and temple, which were inextricably linked in the mind of, of the Jew. Right? Passages like Psalm 118.22, Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 28.16, Daniel 2.34 and following. Now we're familiar with Psalm 118.22 because Peter references it in an earlier speech in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. That's the passage about the rejected stone that becomes the cornerstone of a new temple. And Peter makes much of this in 1 Peter chapter 2, 5 and following. Now, when you, when you read that text against Daniel chapter 2, a very interesting image emerges. If you remember in Daniel chapter 2, the prophet Daniel is interpreting a dream that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. You remember that dream? So there's an image that represents the successive kingdoms of the world. But in addition to that image, there is an unhewn stone. Think about the irony of where are they meeting at right now? 
in the chamber. <laughs> they're meeting in the chamber of hewn stone. Okay? <clears throat> but there's these passages about this unhewn stone that shatters the kingdoms of the world and then becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. In fulfillment, I think, of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God to be kings and priests, rulers who represent God to the world. They were to take the garden, Eden, and to spread it throughout the entire world so that it became a garden temple mountain. Analogies that don't... It's not 100% literal, right? Garden, temple, mountain. They're all places where heaven touches the earth and God communes with humankind. Like, how does a, the world become one mountain? <laughs> but but it, don't stretch the analogy too far, but get the message. Right? There, there is a hewn stone that's coming that will demolish the kingdoms of the world. Right? And it's like a mustard seed. It starts very small, insignificant. But then like a weed, it infiltrates. Right? Or leaven in dough that comes into the dough and then infiltrates and then takes over, right? And so this stone, this unhewn stone from Daniel chapter 2 that turns into a mountain, right, represents the kingdom and temple of our high priest and king, Jesus Christ. He is the rejected stone that became the cornerstone of a temple made up of living stones which are the people who unite themselves to this rejected stone by faith. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and following. And so what, what Stephen is trying to give with the gospel message right, and how it relates to these two sides of us is to say, we need something so much greater than a religious system that morally restrains the inner Mr. Hyde in all of us. So you, you just want to become respectable? Man, I hope if, if, if you came today and you have confused Christianity with moral restraint, I hope it is demolished today. Because what we need is something from the outside. Not something we can make. Something from the outside. Something not cut by human hands. This unhewn stone that will come kill Mr. Hyde. Bring new life in us. Put us in the place of this ever-growing, expanding mountain called the kingdom of God that will one day be the new heavens and the new earth. We, we don't need to be more morally restrained. We don't need to be better at hiding. That's religion. 
is to get better at hiding. What we need is to bring out in a safe community, before the gospel, bring out Mr. Hyde. Not so that we can be, hey, isn't it great? We're all Mr. Hyde. No. So that Mr. Hyde can be stoned with the unhewn stone. And he might be crucified on the cross that we might live in Jesus. Aren't you tired of hiding? Trying to like make it work. The, The gospel liberates you from all of that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the unhewn stone, not cut by any human hand. Your kingdom is the stone that becomes a mountain that fills the earth. Your kingdom is like a mustard seed that that infiltrates the entire field. Your kingdom is like leaven in a dough that spreads throughout of it. Your kingdom will bring us back into Eden. Your power is the only power that can do this, God. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would unclench our hands from those things that we hold on to in hopes of finding salvation, that we would drop those things and receive you alone, God, only by your Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, change us from the inside out. Cause our hearts to be enthralled with Jesus and his kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.